0: Gentlemen, welcome to the most electrifying, must-listen-to podcast in sports entertainment. Welcome to FFC. I'm your host, Damian Ellinghouse, accompanied, as always, by good friend and lover of old computers, Ryan Doyle. How are we, sir?
1: Good. How are you, sir?
0: I'm doing good. I I stole your line. Sorry about that you did you know we're all we're all a couple of sirs here you know no big deal um we are here on a beautiful tuesday night because monday didn't work this week so sorry to all the casual maniacs out there
1: yeah someone had to sling the uh big iron with the with his upper crust comrades
0: yeah you know uh but speaking of 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 (laughs) maniacs uh I am delighted to say that thanks in part to the beautiful boost of your reigning, defending New York wrestling connection champion, Rex Lawless. We here at FFC, uh, just had our biggest month ever. Um, and it is really, really pleasant and incredible to see. Um, we had a, a, a couple of huge days and, uh, all on the backs of, of Rex and Bryce. And it's just, uh, it's a lovely, lovely world. We're here, episode 20. Wow. Episode 20. Can't believe it, man. 20, 20 whole episodes, and it's just been such an awesome ride, and I can't believe that there are even two people that want to listen to this. Uh, so to everyone that tunes in regularly or semi-regularly or or knows us or doesn't know us and all of our fans in Africa, um special shout
1: and... Boys,
0: um, we're very thankful for all of you, and uh, we hope that you continue along this journey with us. So, it's been an interesting week, uh, in a couple of promotions, and we have a fun little episode here today. Um, but to start, Ryan, what do you have for the people?
1: What am I drinking?
0: What are you drinking? What
1: am I drinking? Well, uh, two weeks ago, I had the pleasure to take a little vacation upstate, and I stopped by the illustrious Amagang.
0: Oh, went all the way up to Cooperstown.
1: Yep, good old Cooperstown. Uh, Didn't do any tour or anything like that because it was packed as, as normal, but I was able to stop in their store and pick up some good things. And I was able to get a can of my favorite Amagang beer. And that is the of pin. It is a wheat or a wheat, as I was corrected at the uh at the brewery.
0: Bunch of assholes. <laughs> Correct you on saying the word wheat? Oh, oh. A, what, what, like a W I T T E? Yes. A vit.
1: Vite. Vite. Whatever I don't know. Whatever.
0: Say, no goddamn Belgium.
1: Anyway, so uh hennepin is one of my favorite beers. It is, like we said, a Belgian white, crafted as such. Uh has a little bit of a bite to it, and uh was my favorite beer of my favorite former drinking place. Effen Gurban. Now not Effen Gurban anymore. As
0: now Effen we'll and... <laughs> <and> Nazis. <laughs> F bootlickers, you can you can fucking sue me later. <laughs> oh my gang, I've I've never been huge on the Belgian stylings myself. Yeah, taking a trip to Allegash helped train change that. Oh in, yeah, for uh, sure. Portland, Maine, but oh my gang does make some really great stuff, and of course they had those Game of Thrones beers, which were all very cool when uh, we were allowed to like that before that went south. So speaking of trips, last weekend I. Took a nice little nine hour drive around Long Island, went to Long Beach, drove up to the North Shore, went up to Eaton, Eaton Beach, Eaton Point, uh, where you can see Stamford, Connecticut and Titan Tower um, from a little beach and then drove all the way out to Montauk. And so in that travel, I went to Garvey's Point uh and Thanks. i was lucky I was lucky enough to see friend of the podcast Rory O'Connor there on a very serendipitous note because he does not usually work on sundays uh and so I have here the sour batch blueberry mosaic It is a dry hopped sour wheat blueberry ale, and from the horse's mouth itself a tart hoppy and refreshing wheat beer single hopped with mosaic. This beer is packed with seedless blueberries. Pours deep purple and has a hoppy mosaic finish. Get ready to pucker up! It does. uh, It is very purple, so that's nice. It's. It's. I've. I've had it before. So, let us dilly no more. No further dallies. Let us crack. And
1: you know, one thing I'll say about the uh, the vita, um. Has kinda like has a champagne like effervescence to it. Kind of like, you know, when you have like that dry like after you sip a some champagne, you have like that dry mm-hmm. that like dryness to it. It kinda has that incorporated in it, which I like. And it's okay. not just like flat or like, you know,
0: yeah overly, yeah
1: overly juicy as some beers are.
0: I get that. Yeah. I um I like this one because the same, it's this one is a little dry. Um but it's nice. It's nice. It's um it's dry hopped. So I guess what more is like, hey, to say There expert. you go.
1: It's in the name. It's, it,
0: it's very uh it'll definitely make you pucker, for sure. Um okay, so if we have no further things, let's get right up into it. Okay, so uh to briefly talk a smidge about the greatest wrestling promotion in the world, New Japan. So an interesting little thing here is uh, with the help of Kazuchika Okada, uh, Harold Meij announced a new title um, in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And that is going to be the first title since the United States Championship was added into the fold in 2017. Uh, prior to that, the most recent ones were the Never Open Weight Belts. So, This is the KOPW title, the King of Pro Wrestling title. Now, what's interesting about this title, as it was uh, explained by Kazu, is there's not actually going to be a belt. There's no physical indication when you win it that you actually have it. Um, They are currently going to start a tournament on the 26th uh, as part of Summer Struggle, which has been going on for the last couple of weeks to determine who is the winner. And basically, it looks like each match is going to have its own stipulation decided on by the contestants. And then each title match will be the same thing. It'll be whatever type of match they want. And there's always going to be some form of a stipulation. And you'll defend it. And then whoever has it at the end of the year is that year's King of Pro Wrestling champion. And you get like a trophy. But then it resets come January 1st. So, a little unorthodox, um, I guess a little bit similar, it's not as much of a novelty as like the greatest Royal Rumble belt was, but definitely interesting in that uh, there's no physical indicator that you are champion, and it's very fluid.
1: So wait, is it a tournament, or kind of just, they do a series of matches, and then as soon as January 1st hits, that's when they determine everything?
0: So... Thi- there is going to be a tournament now to decide the first champion.
1: Okay. Gotcha. And
0: then match. And I don't know if it'll be the same thing every year. Like, if every year we'll have a tournament, maybe I guess sometime after Wrestle Kingdom or at Wrestle King- Well, I guess you wouldn't have a tournament at Wrestle Kingdom. I don't know if it'll be like a match at Wrestle Kingdom or like a tournament that happens in the beginning of the year, maybe sometime around like New Year uh, dash or something mm-hmm. to then determine. But that's what it'll be for now. And, um, So that's definitely going to be interesting to see. Um, Yeah, it seems
1: like a fun uh, little thing that they can do now and between the G one coming up. So why not? Mm -hmm. All for it. Yeah,
0: it's it's interesting if nothing else. Um, And yeah, it it'll probably be something that they'll give to Okada uh, since he doesn't really have anything right now, and he just lost the never open weight six man belt to. Uh, his fellow Chaos stablemates. Now, the reason I bring this up is not because the Never Six Man belts are, are particularly interesting. They're widely considered to be like the lowest belt in New Japan's uh, thing. But, you know, they, they have some solid six-man matches and this, they had a tournament throughout Summer Struggle in the wake of Evil joining Bullet Club because Evil was champion with Shingo Takage and Bushi uh, at the time. Uh, upon him defecting, so they had a tournament, and it ended up being all of chaos. It was, it was Kazuchika Okada, Yano Toro and Show and Show. I got it. Who Show? Sho? I don't know. I, it's my <laughs> fault. Uh, versus Yoshihashi, Tomohiro Ishii, and Hiroki Goto. Now Yoshihashi is like a little. Uh, he's a little maligned. Uh, for new japan fans because he's he's kind of weird, he's just this like awkward, weird little fellow who like I know everyone in New Japan yells a lot, but he really yells a lot in his matches, uh but he's a twelve year vet who's never won a championship, and their team ended up going over uh after Ishii pin's show, and so for the first time in his twelve years, he's finally a champion uh in New Japan, so it was like a nice little moment like Okada presents him with the belt and That's like cool. puts it around his waist, and you know it's like a good feel good story he's 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 not the best in ring performer, but he's been. I think he's been around in chaos since they started. So that's definitely was cool to see. So he's like
1: a uh, like a Christian type.
0: Yeah, I don't think he's quite. Well, you know what, what? What did people think of Christian like when he was active?
1: Well, I mean, maybe that's a, a little bit of an example. I mean, Christian was. Um highly decorated before he went on a singles run it's not like he didn't it's not like he never won anything but when he was doing his singles run he kind of like you know he got over he had Mm -hmm. the peeps and you know the peep show segments that he did but outside of like the european or anything like that you know he was just always one of those names to be considered to get uh the heavyweight championship but just never really made it there and then he went to tna and that's where he became like Captain charisma and then like you know he really got his stock up
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, as yeah. far as i know he he held the ecw championship and then he held the big gold belt for like one day and then randy orton got it back but he was always somebody that you know the smart your fans are always pushing for just because you know he's a really he's a really good in- 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 performer i mean i don't know if he's on edges in orton's level but you know he definitely could hold his own and especially everybody if you were paying attention to his uh 2006-2017 a run he was lighting it up So that's, Mm -hmm. that's where like the famous thing comes from when, uh, when Christian returned, it was like, it's Christian.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, Yoshihashi's not really like that. I don't even know if Yoshihashi's ever even like fought for any of the biggest belts. Um, other than like maybe the contract for the heavyweight championship. Um, no, Yoshihashi's just like a guy and he hasn't been around since chaos started, but he's been around since 2012. So when like Okada took over it, uh, He's just a guy that's been around forever and he's not the worst. He's not the best. He's got some matches where he surprises you. And then he's got some matches where you're like, boy, Yoshihashi's not good. Um, but he won a lower card belt and it's, you know, it's just nice that a veteran gets a, gets a look. See, and it was like an all chaos match. Like I said, so that was cool. The big thing that happened really was show and Ishii had like this really incredible showing show has been a fucking superstar ever since yo got hurt. Uh, and it sucks because I love Rapongi three K, but man, I tell you Showstar star is, is shining bright right now. Um, I see big things on the horizon for him and he's fucking, he's really great.
1: Hey dude, one way to like a good course to the top is having, is being in the tag team and having your partner injured because then they have to decide what to do with you. And, mm-hmm. uh, in some cases it works out, you know, you get like a, uh, what they call in baseball uh, a Wally Pitt moment. Wally Pitt was a first baseman and uh, got hurt. And the man who replaced him in a game was Lou Gehrig. And Lou Gehrig never stopped playing after that. (laughs) So, you know,
0: got Wally pipped. Yeah. And, 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 yo is extremely talented in his own right. And so I don't suspect this will be something where yo gets left behind, but show is really just making a great name for himself and, Uh, You know, he's kind of like the new Shingo of the junior division where he's just like the incredibly strong dude that like can go with heavyweights. Um, So I'm definitely looking forward to what happens with that. And then just like a a, a couple other small things about New Japan. lines Break Collision happened for about four episodes. That was what New Japan of America. That's a show they were running, I think, out in California, uh, which then turned into New Japan Strong or NJPW Strong, as it's called now. Uh, featured a couple of of guys you know, a couple of guys you don't. Uh, as Rex had mentioned on the last episode, uh, Alex Cough- Coughlin was there, had a match against Filthy Tom Lawler. Filthy Tom Lawler had a match against Rocky Romero. TJP's been there. And it all led to um, a tournament, the first ever, they're calling it the first ever New Japan Cup USA, where it's an eight-man tournament single elimination and the winner gets a contract for a match against moxley for the united states championship that's actually pretty cool it is cool and kenta came back that was like the big thing that happened um oh yeah you know you might as well get your
1: talent that are stuck here you know to be utilized in the states and hey if he won i would love me some moxley versus kenta
0: oh yeah why why the hell not and um you know, get get some of the the young lions there in the LA dojo that can't travel because right now the only ones that are really able to do anything is is Suji Gabriel Kidd and Um Uemura Uemura. Okay. Um, they're the only young lions that are there. So get your young guys in LA some run. It's always great to see TJP. TJP is one of those guys that I never paid a ton of attention to when he was like. Uh, in the Cruiserweight, when he was on, like, 205 Live and in the Cruiserweight division in WWE, but I really like his work since he left WWE. Um,
1: yeah, TJP is definitely good. Um, you know, he kind of, his gimmick in WWE kind of, like, had negative energy to it, and he wasn't, like, adversely expressing himself or being good at that, but, I mean, he was awesome. He was, uh, who was he in TNA? He was homicide? He was homicide. Um Suicide, there we go. He was suiciding in CNA and had a really good run uh, as that character. But yeah, I mean, he was really good. He was only made Cruiserweight Champion because Ibushi didn't want it. And then um, Zack Sabre Jr. didn't want it, so they gave it to him. Um, but I did enjoy his time in WWE in the, uh, 205, the short-lived 205 Live
0: era. The dab.
1: Although, I, I think it's still... <laughs> yeah, the dab, Jesus. The dab. I think it's still going on, though, but... Eh.
0: 205, yeah, it's still going on. I I don't care. It's not their fault. Um, They're treated as a second-rate act, and that's unfortunate. There's a lot of talent down there. But, um... So, so the big names is, like, the Tongans are working this tournament. Uh, Tama Tonga advanced over Brody King, and Tonga Loa lost to Jeff Cobb. Did
1: you see the, uh... The picture of uh, Bad Luck Valley recently.
0: No, is he looking slim again? He's
1: looking mad slim, dude.
0: Let me take a quick look over here. What do we got? Let me get some images. Oh, whoa! Damn, that's look. That's like that's what he looked like when he when Bullet Club first started. When he used to carry around Finn. I remember when I first saw him. I was like, wait, that's fucking Bad Luck Valley? Like he was massive and could barely move. Like in his last G one. Oh, good for him, man. Good for him. Um yeah, Carl Fredericks has been like the big breakout star of that show. Um, now that he's no longer a young lion. Um he's been doing some really great work, but Kenta went over on him. So you're gonna have uh you're gonna have Kenta and Jeff Cobb in the semifinals, and then you're gonna have Tamatanga and um was juice robinson's partner finlay you're gonna have finlay
1: that's pretty cool i was wondering where jeff cobb went
0: i wouldn't be surprised if jeff cobb wins and ultimately goes over on mox because i think new japan likes jeff cobb a lot um he i thought he was pretty solid in the g1 and jeff cobb and moxley and jeff cobb i think was the first match of of moxley's g1 last year And it was, like, his, like, coming out party of, like, oh, shit, that's what Moxley's going to look like in New Japan. And he I think he went over on Jeff Cobb. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that. I also wouldn't be surprised to see Kenta bring more gold to Bullet Club. Um,
1: Yeah, I didn't realize. I guess he's New Japan full-time because he was on AEW for, like, two weeks and then he disappeared. Of course, this is before everything happened with the pandemic, but um, it seemed like they were about to give him, like, what Brian Cage currently has now. But I guess he's, um, you know, more New Japan than he is AEW, but AEW yep. will like sign people like two two week contracts that they need.
0: Yeah, well, Jeff Cobb was like a Ring of Honor guy, and remember Ring of Honor and New Japan worked together. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also worked PWG. Uh, he was he actually is at least from January 2019, he was PWG champion. so okay. um, but yeah, so some cool stuff happening in New Japan, nothing crazy, but um it's a shame Moxley hasn't been able to have like an actual rain, but what was cool for anyone that saw the last uh, episode of dynamite as we segue into our next part here against Darby Allen is people may have noticed him put Darby Allen into a rear naked choke after Darby attempted the coffin drop and then saw him do a kind of modified pile driver where he linked his arms in between Darby Allen's legs. And for those that don't know that is Minoru Suzuki's, finisher sequence it is the rear naked choke into the gotch style pile driver and this is i think the first time he hit it however he didn't finish the match with that he finished it with a paradigm shift but really cool to see that continuity of moxley going over having this like really brutal match with suzuki and then starting to use the gotch style pile driver and a little more submissions like he he tapped brian cage out with an arm bar So I don't know if that was necessarily intentional, but very cool to see if so.
1: That's really cool, man. I didn't catch that. Um, I'm really curious to see if maybe he even did that in WWE. Doesn't sound like it because it it sounds like exactly how you portrayed It's that he he picked it up, you know, kayfabe or not within New Japan. But, you know, it's like all, all those like little subtle moves that, you know, people usually miss in a WWE match that, you know, especially with somebody like Cesaro. Cesaro has like seven different like finishing moves within him that yeah won't be presented as finishing moves like uh the Ricola bomb or he does some, he does like a like the gotch neutralizer and stuff like that i mean like mm-hmm. that's his main finisher but he has like several other finishes within them so i wonder if that was always something that i just missed with moxley but that's really cool man i mean it's funny that he mentioned so. suzuki too because you know if we're looking like 20 years down the road and like you know Moxley is like the old like wily veteran. I can definitely see him being. Ah, sorry, I can definitely see him being portrayed as a Suzuki type character.
0: Yeah, for sure. Just wanton violence. um Suzuki's definitely a little more sinister, but they it wouldn't be that hard for Moxley to just be a full on heel. You right. know, um I don't think he did it as Ambrose because Ambrose he wasn't as big as he is now, and the rear naked choke into the Gotch style is kind of only something that works if you have the size on somebody like not that Ambrose was like teeny tiny, but I mean, he was the smallest member of the shield up until he came back from injury. Oh my God,
1: he was fucking beef. When he, when he first came out, uh,
0: no. So I think he picked that up from Suzuki and that was definitely cool to see. And so that segues us into the next, uh, small things that I wanted to talk about, which is, uh, AW putting on the clown shoes, Cody Rhodes, uh, to be more specific, uh, Chris Jericho, of course, being the king of ass clowns, decides that, well, shit, you know what the people need right now is we need more fuzzy concerts. <laughs> and so Chris Jericho flies out to South Dakota and plays uh, with no protection Sturgis. in a fucking closed mm-hmm. venue uh with no fucking protection, no social distancing, no nothing, bunch of fucking bikers complaining about having to wear masks because it impedes their freedom, whatever. Um I'm not <laughs> so like Chris Jericho, this is if you like pay attention to him enough. Uh Chris Jericho is a lot of things good for the business and uh you know by all accounts is like a pretty decent guy to the people around him. But like Chris Jericho is uh, a fucking prick in a lot of ways also. Uh, And this being one of them, you know, I mean, Jericho had, has had flat earthers on his podcast before um, talking about how COVID-19 is like a demonic Hoax and shit. And here's the thing, right? Jericho is clearly trying to portray himself on his podcast as like a Joe Rogan type. That's why he had Eric, Eric Trump or Donald Trump Jr., whichever one it was. Uh, he like try, you know, oh, I'm just listening to different opinions. But like, he's definitely um, not on the same page as a lot of AEW. No, I guess know, we can leave it at how to that.
1: Board the lines like Joe Rogan does. And yeah, no. and
0: you know, also fuck Joe Rogan. I'm not here to fucking stand Joe Rogan. Um, yeah. But so he plays the show And then so there's obviously outrage Because well what did fucking Taz say before about running a sloppy Shop and like here's one of the Faces of AEW playing his fucking Mediocre yeah. ass butt rock To people in South Dakota And Cody goes on Twitter and is like Oh well I'm sure Like he was in a bubble like a production Bubble wearing PPEs yeah, It's like, like I don't know man it's not, move, it's not man. What the pictures online say Uh, And he, like, immediately deletes it. And, uh, look, I get that it's tough to tell, like, arguably the most important person to your promotion being a big deal that, like, you fucked up and we need to take this seriously. But, like, you Uh, fucked up. Chris, we
1: were very concerned that you played Sturgis. And I think we'll be shut the fuck up, Tony. Okay, okay. Okay,
0: okay, okay, (laughs) okay. And here's the thing, right? They've got one more day to make a decision here. Uh, But I don't. I don't see them doing anything. It's not. They're and not gonna do
1: anything, dude. Th-
0: they're not but- gonna do shit. And you've oh you've hyped the shit out of this Orange Cassidy match. You got it over pretty organically. The debate was great. And then Jericho does shit like this because Chris Jericho just doesn't care. Because the only bubble Chris Jericho's living in is a bubble of wealth and privilege, where like, oh, I could just like I take my private jet and I get on stage and I leave and whatever. But like that's what that is. And when they inevitably let Jericho go. And they're going to say that they tested him and it's not going to matter because the tests are inaccurate almost half the time. And it's only been like a day or two. Uh, And sometimes people aren't symptomatic for a week or two and test negative, negative, then positive, like Renee Young, like other people in WWE. uh, When inevitably that happens, AW is going to be rightfully uh, blasted for it. Or maybe they won't because... Maybe the AEW stands will be like, well, it's still different. Like it's one guy, and what can you do? But like, we here on this podcast, we may like AEW, and we like the fact that there's new competition, and there's no longer a monopoly. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's just fucking billionaires playing with money, and millionaires not giving shit about the welfare of those around them, and thinking they're they're above a virus.
1: Well, it goes two ways for me. <clears throat> One way is that you can not give a shit, and, you know, you could be on that side, and, you know, whatever Chris Jericho did wasn't a big deal, and, you know, like you said, if he gets three negative tests in a row, then I suppose he's good, he has his test or whatever they're doing before, Dynamite tomorrow. Okay, fine. But you said the president of the rest of the roster that wants to go out and is actually making an effort, like mm-hmm. Moxley, to, you know, try to not test positive and do as much as he can to still keep working um so if for example i don't know darby allen or santana ortiz want to go out and then they get punished for it well what what are you saying there you know what i mean are you really just exactly cow tail to chris jericho and uh you know at the same time everybody that's piling on jericho you better keep giving that same energy to other wrestlers that you see on Instagram pretty much, you know, and I'm not going to lie. I just mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that I went on a vacation upstate and, you know, I came back and I tried to quarantine myself as much as possible. So I'm not innocent here, but you know, if you know, you're going to rail on somebody for that, then, you know, keep up that same energy. That's all I'm going to say about it.
0: And here's the thing is there's a huge difference between taking a trip where you drive and you're staying within your own state and you're, like, being careful about what you're doing, where you're going, who you're being around, and playing a fucking packed venue with your band before you go to your wrestling taping where hundreds of other people are and you're going to go fucking sweat in a ring for 20 minutes, like... They are not comparable situations. And you're exactly right, though. Keep that same energy for people like Dustin Rhodes, who were already talking about opening it back up months ago. And, you know... Right, and that's the thing.
1: AEW wants to portray themselves, like we said, as a very progressive company, but when it comes down to it, they are a sloppy shop, you know? They were hounding WWE for not letting... Like, you know, they weren't allowing... And, they, you know, WWE's not innocent, don't get me wrong um you know for not making people wear masks uh having an increase in their audience at the height of the pandemic down in florida so you know you can't have it both ways AEW would love to have it both ways but you can't you know and the wrestling industry is like any other multi-billion dollar industry in america as you said um but you know don't Don't have it both ways, Tony. You have to fucking put your foot down. And if that means suspending your top superstar, then that's what you got to do. I'm sure WWE didn't enjoy, you know, suspending Shawn Michaels at the height of his popularity or, you know, making him lose his smile. But they did. So, you know, you got to do what's good for business and what appears to be good for business. 100%.
0: And... Look, at the end of the day, Jericho isn't even the fucking guy with the belt. I'm not saying he's not a big deal, and I'm certainly not going to suddenly act like Chris Jericho doesn't matter to the show. He's in a major program. He's a ratings booster, all that shit. But, like, it's not like you're suspending your champion. There's ways to get around it. There's a thousand—have right. have the inner circle jump, Cassidy, and make some fucking shit—like— But it's beyond that because they had the moral high ground because they were doing a lot of things that WWE was not doing. And they still were running shows with people. So, like, you take that as it is. Um, But they had the moral high ground in a lot of ways. And if you let Jericho go on tomorrow, which they will, you lose all of it. You look like fucking clowns. And it's the same thing as Cody Rhodes being all pro-union. And then the minute that he has uh, a stake in a promotion... And has millions backing it all of a sudden, well, I don't know, unionization would be really hard to figure out. So Did he say that? Yeah, he said that. He was he they asked him about it and he was like, There's just like you have to find out a way to do it. And I don't know if we have that way to do that's it yet. Yeah, just, just just fuck it. Just yeah, fuck you. Uh, so you know, but you know, I
1: when we were talking about this over the weekend, at first I said, Well, you know, it's an unfortunate situation of AEW needs Chris Jericho, Chris Jericho doesn't need AEW. But I think I'm wrong on that, dude. I think I'm wrong because even if AEW fire Chris Jericho tomorrow, he's not going to be, he's not going to have the ability to do what he does on a scale in AEW. As, because if he goes back to WWE, he's pretty much just going to be like another face of crap. And yeah, he's going to get TV time, but I mean, definitely not to the degree of what he's doing currently in AEW. So I don't know if I was right about that when I first initially texted you. But yeah, I, think- I mean, he does have the power in this situation. Let's be honest. He-
0: Yeah. I I mean, I think that AEW absolutely needs him, but it doesn't matter. You have to do what's right by the people that he has to work with. And if you don't do that, you are letting all of those people know that our ratings and everything that we are, we can't let this one guy go anywhere for two weeks. Like, that matters more than your safety and health. And if that's the decision you make, then you're not functionally any different than WWE. You've just done some things better. and Agreed. To pivot before we get to our main segment today, Um, you know, speaking of WWE, much maligned on this podcast, and rightfully so, uh, Raw has actually been pretty fucking good for like a couple of months now. And this I feel like this happens every couple of months, like a year, where you're like, Wow, like Raw SmackDown, really fucking good, and then like it it sucks for eight months again. But yeah, the raw the raw underground thing aside, which like me personally, you're not gonna catch me being like, oh, you know, it's edgy, and they're just trying something new, and you hate it. Like it's fucking stupid, and I don't know what the point of it is, and like get Shane McMahon away from it. But
1: okay, here's the, here's the thing. I'm not disagreeing with you, but you know, it's something new, and they're trying something. Yeah. And is it gonna last five weeks? Less probably. Um, I wouldn't have done it in the manner that they did. And I don't know what they're doing with this retribution angle, which is just like Antifa, I guess
0: it's, it's <laughs> next to Antifa on
1: the TV. It was like, ah, oh, get, get, get up with some cinder blocks and have him fuck shit up <laughs> on campus. Um, you know, if, if Shane uses it as a manner to get over, uh, Babatunde, I think his name is, I don't know. I, he has a new name. UK fame name currently, mm. and like you know, he uses it as like Shane is using it as like his arena to get over uh Baba Tunde. And um, you know, you have wrestlers like like what Ziggler did come in, and you know, it was like, if you're gonna fight this guy, you're gonna fight him on our turns here in the raw underground. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I don't know what they're doing, it's like UFC, it's like Fight Club. Um, it's funny, it's... though, because you're watching some of these matches and Shane's, like, in the back are like, oh, yeah, oh, shit, oh, oh. <laughs> like, so that part is pretty funny. Um, but, yeah, you know what? I mean, you can't complain about WWE that they have the same old formula every week and then they try to do something new. It's like, well, I hate that, too. It's like, well, then, I don't know. What are you, you going to do? They're but trying. I also,
0: but we spoke about this earlier in the week and I, it just confuses me and I saw this take on Twitter and I agree with it It's like, so what are you saying about the product in the ring? Are you saying are you like denigrating your own product and saying it's too sanitized? Are you trying to say that this is just different because you're not playing by any rules because at that point is are they just hardcore matches like and for me personally, I don't give a shit about like fake worked shoots in my wrestling. Like I don't need fake MMA matches in yeah. this and like it's not like WWE hasn't tried shit like this before with things like Brawl for All and and thing shit like that. Like, yeah, it's cool you're capitalizing on Bobby Lashley and MVP actually having like MMA backgrounds to some degree, and you know. But uh, I look, we'll see where it goes. I just, but my point was, aside from that, like, there's actually been a lot of really great character work going on on Raw. Uh, Randy Orton has probably not been this dialed in in over a decade since like Evolution was at their peak. Did you watch uh, that World-
1: promo last night?
0: I did. I didn't see Rick's part of it, but I saw Randy's. And Dude, like he Rick's was part of it, man. I know. That um, was deep. Yeah, and, and and same with Seth. Seth is doing. I, I think that you can make an argument that the Monday Night Messiah is a more interesting heel character than just like Authority Rollins, because Authority Rollins is is just I'm sucking up to corporate. But the Monday Night Messiah is 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 kind of cool because he's a cult leader, but it's not. I don't know it's it's a little different than normal cult leader things, and I like the fact that he really sticks to the this is for the greater good, and everything I do is for the greater good. I really like that he's stuck to that angle where like even where he gets deranged, it's always like, but I have a plan and I have a purpose, and it's never just to hurt people like I think the character's interesting, and uh the whole angle with Dominic mysterios work really well. his forty lashes dude dude, rough stuff was that rough like stuff. a uh,
1: was that like an initiation from the boys to like you know break him in?
0: I hope not, because I really hope that shit is over, but probably. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's
1: funny, though. That you mentioned Seth's character work. You know, if he kind of, like, comes out of every feud that he's in as the Monday Night Messiah and gets over his opponent, whether they need it or not, but the opponent comes out stronger than before they started shooting, I kind of like that angle if they went in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, Dominic becomes, you know, a more of an angry force within himself instead of just, you know, the baby face reimsing your kid.
0: Yeah. Um, and maybe- I'm curious
1: to see how the match goes, though, because I know I know Dominic has some chops, but you know, I mean, in terms of character work, he's like, oh shucks, come on. You're like, you hurt my dad. Like, you know, <laughs> so I hope he I really hope he gets himself over in the match. I'm curious.
0: He showed his edge though. He showed his edge like the last couple of episodes. And um say what you want about Seth, but like I never agreed with this take that like Seth is just some indie darling that like is a spot monkey. Uh, no Seth, Seth is one of the best workers in wrestling. And if anyone is going to get somebody who's green to like a really good match, I trust it to be Seth. He works pretty safe, uh, for the most part, buckle bombs aside. Um, and yeah, no, I think it should be good. I think SummerSlam actually has a couple of matches on it. That should be pretty good. Um, I'm still not really watching the product at the moment. There's just too many hours. Uh, and there's not enough hours in the day. But um, Raw is currently in one of its moments where, like, it is actually uh, pretty solid top to bottom. Um, So that's cool. Still, Yeah,
1: I'm really hyped for the uh, the Randy Orton-Drew McIntyre match. That's going to be fucking fantastic.
0: Yeah, and the way that Randy's going, I think him winning and them having a feud for that later on, I think that works for the character. Um, And I don't think it hurts Drew because... You're not dropping it to someone that's just like, oh, like you really need like Randy Orton hasn't been a world champion in a very long time. So no, like
1: they they played it right with him. And you no, know, he I don't think he's gonna ultimately break Ric Flair's record, but he's up there.
0: hmm He's Absolutely. definitely up
1: there. Absolutely. And uh if they're aiming to make him the number two with that record, then fine by me. Uh and- it would be funny though if Ric Flair ends up helping Randy Orton win in the Summer Slam match. That'd be really <laughs> fucking awesome.
0: That would be funny. So speaking of interesting things that raw has been doing a couple of weeks ago, something very interesting happened in. So we haven't really seen Braun Strowman in a couple of weeks after he was drowned in a swamp, I guess at extreme (laughs) rules. And and that's, he's just still there being fucking swamp thing is uh, Alexa bliss got the fiend treatment. And in what is one of the more shocking things that has happened in a while, the Fiend actually applied the mandible claw to her cowering Alexa Bliss. And Alexa Bliss really, in my opinion, is one of the best like actors in WWE because the way that she sold The Fiend's presence around her was perfect. Just silent, fear. Right. I don't know what the fuck to do and just like The way that Bray menacingly just slowly started lifting the hand to her as she just stares at it, knowing what's going to happen, knowing that there's nothing she can do to stop it before it's applied was great work. And what's interesting about it, of course, is WWE does not have guys lay their hands on women all that often. Uh, It is not. That's just not a thing that's happened in the PG era, which leads me directly into our main segment for tonight here. So. Former WWE, ECW, and WCW superstar and former WWE producer Lance Storm, uh, he made the headlines, made the waves uh, recently by suggesting that intergender wrestling should be ended for good, especially in light of the speaking out movement. Um, His take being that many women have been forced into these types of matches for fears of getting heat backstage or being blacklisted, as well as being forced to share a locker room, things of that nature. And... Like I said, if you're a WWE fan, that may not necessarily strike you as like a controversial take, as WWE has largely stayed away from any form of of man-on-woman action since the end of the Ruthless Aggression era and the the beginning of the PG era, with extremely rare exceptions such as Baron Corbin delivering the end of days to Becky Lynch last year in his feud with Seth, uh, or the Mixed Match Challenge, which played by the Lucha Libre rules of men only being able to wrestle men and vice versa— or most recently when Santino came out as Santina in the Women's Rumble, uh, or when Bray uh, hit the mandible claw on Alexa Bliss. But if you're an older fan, you probably know that this wasn't always the case. And so tonight I want to talk a little bit about intergender wrestling uh, and a little bit of its backstory. So it's hard to pin down exactly when intergender wrestling began um, for professional wrestling. But a good starting place would be with Mildred Burke. So Mildred Burke, born as Mildred Bliss, ironically enough, in 1915. uh, She went to her first wrestling event as an 18-year-old that had just gotten married and moved from uh, New Mexico to Kansas City. And her boyfriend took her to a wrestling match, and she immediately became interested in wrestling. Now, contrary to what you might think... Women's professional wrestling was actually very much a thing back in the 30s and 40s. Some will actually consider that the original golden age of women's wrestling. And it was in Kansas City that while working as, uh, you know, working as like a uh, waitress or in a store or whatever, she met Billy Wolf. Billy Wolf was a local Kansas City trainer who had been training women in the area. Uh, They meet in the mid 30s, and Mildred asked to be trained. Billy Wolf was immediately uninterested and asked a male wrestler to body slam her in order to get her to go away because that's what you do in the old days, right? Ah, listen, Braun, I don't got time for you. Billy, Billy, why don't you come over here and body slam this woman? Get, out of, my, get out of my locker room. Uh, You know, instead of just asking nicely. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, when Burke immediately instead slammed the wrestler that Wolf had sent after her, he recanted and agreed to train her because, well... Gee, you got Moxie, and I like that kid. Why don't you strap up? Ah, oh, you're a whirling gal, huh? Look at you strapping. I, I I like your spunk. So he begins training Mildred, and eventually they get married, and Burke would go on to win <laughs> the. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, what? You didn't see that coming? <laughs> you
1: can bake my pie anytime, honey.
0: <laughs> so they get married, and. Mildred Burke goes on to win the Women's World Championship, which is like the first women's championship. That's, it was the championship. Wins it off of Clara Mortensen in 1937. Now, Mildred Burke was a woman of great strength and uh, pretty impressive physique. Legend has it, she would go on to wrestle over 200 men in her career and would only be defeated by one of them. It's hard to prove any of that, but that is as the, that's how the story goes. But eventually, she ends up being blacklisted in the 50s by her giant piece of shit ex-husband, Billy Wolf, who, wouldn't you know it, was actually a massive misogynist and serial womanizer who had Milfred Burke discredited by the N.W.A. Uh, a year after divorcing in 1953. And this was an event that helped almost kill women's wrestling in its glory days and discredited one of its biggest pioneers. Um, and she had divorced and basically, uh, Billy Wolf put out this rumor that she refused to work with any woman out there at all and used his, his, uh, significant power to have the NWA just discredit her entirely. Now that's pretty shocking, right? But maybe not as much as you'd think, because Ryan, do you know who Billy Wolf's biggest protege was? Would you like to take a guess? Uh, NWA, big name. It's a woman. Mula? That's right. Billy Wolf's biggest protege, Mary Lillian Ellison, perhaps better known as the Fabulous Mula. Uh, not the less said about the Fabulous Mula, uh, the better. But for listeners that don't know, Fabulous Mula held the NWA Women's Championship for 28 years. Uh, it's the longest title reign, I believe, of any professional wrestler in any promotion anywhere in the world, to my knowledge. Um, Fabulous Moolah If you were a fan in the 90s The 80s, the 70s, you knew who she was And she was looked at as a pioneer Of women's wrestling She was the women's wrestler uh, Terrific heel However, as it turns out uh, Ellison Was on the low low But not on such a low low That people didn't know Was actually one of the biggest monsters In the history of professional wrestling her ruthless stranglehold on the women's industry and sex trafficking of its stars ensured that women's wrestling would remain a joke for decades, despite the best efforts of the many trailblazers that would follow her. Like I said, I won't get caught up talking too much about Moolah, but uh, Ryan, you want to give us a couple of minutes on why this was so shocking to find out about for people?
1: Well, I mean, we, our generation knows Moolah pretty much through the segments in the Attitude Era with May Young. And the way Moolah was portrayed was like, you know, Mae Young was the more uh, unleashed of the two. And, you know, Moolah, as she was just portray- portrayed to me, was the greatest woman's wrestler of all time. But she was also more relaxed and more subdued between the two character angles that they usually did whenever shenanigans occurred as they came on screen. But she still wrestled, man. She was wrestling up until like, I don't know, early 2000s. And, you know, she was still in it. But you know, it's funny that you mentioned how the person that trained her uh held down Mildred Burke because she certainly held down women's wrestling for like 28 years. Mm-hmm. And there is the famous incident, uh, the Black Widow. Um, I believe it was against Jake. Wendy, J- Wendy Richter. Wendy Richter. Wendy Richter. No, I'm thinking of Rock and Robin, Jake the Snake's sister. Uh, no, but it was against Wendy Richter, where Wendy Richter was like the up and coming uh, Becky Lynch of her day. And, you know, the torch was ready to be passed to her. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this, ca- this masked character comes out, the Black Widow. And lo and behold, it's Moolah. And she goes over on Wendy Richter, gets the title. And pretty much that was the end of Wendy Richter's run in anything in wrestling, as far as I know but mm-hmm. you know that aspect of Mula Sai came out and then we hear all the awful and terrible things about her that she was a pit and you know made her female talent sell them sell themselves out sexually to get further in the game only to be put down by her if they ever got too big so just an awful human being um, Yeah. like i said we won't go too in depth into that but yeah no, I mean she wasn't the loving grandmother that we uh all viewed her to be growing up. She no. was actually way more insane than may young was,
0: and it's it's uh it's apropos that one of her staunchest defenders at one point was Jerry the king Lawler, uh because of course you would be um yeah so so Mula, as she did with the rest of the women for all of her career, as she did to wendy Richter um you know, Billy Wolf holds down Mildred Burke and this legendary pioneer of re- of women's wrestling and arguably the first to really engage in intergender wrestling in professional wrestling kind of goes out without a trace. Now, she was inducted into the Hall of Fame um, and she, you know, she it's not like she was uh, this, you know, she died a pauper, but, you know, her she wasn't allowed to be the star that she was for you know, the few brief, the uh, not even brief, like like the first 15, 20 years of her career. So following this, it wouldn't be until the late 1970s that a woman and a man would step into the ring together. Now, most listeners or casual fans may remember this as being when Andy Kaufman declared himself the intergender champion of the world and wrestled over 400 women, directly leading to his feud with Jerry the King Lawler. Um, now... Uh, yes, I know what you're about to say. Well, you know, they're all wrestling is fake. But these were like these were not these weren't like booked wrestling matches Um, with necessarily known stars. It's like Andy Kaufman just like beating, you know, b- pretending to like beat the shit out of women. To, it, it, I mean, it was a wrestling angle. It's, you know, I'm lying. It's exact. it's just a wrestling angle. But um, big hulking women, big hulking women. Uh, however, Women of Wrestling star and former NWA Women's Champion Selena Majors, who people may better know as Bambi, recalls that the first match that she can think of actually belonged to Ole Anderson's Georgia Championship Wrestling when he booked Joyce Grable and Judy Ma- Martin against Scott Hall and an unknown partner in a men's tag team tournament in 1978.
1: Um, Holy oh, shit, Scott, wait, B.
0: Scott Hall? The Scott Hall, because I think... Ye- very young scott hall worked georgia championship wrestling in that No, it era. makes
1: sense i didn't realize he went back that far
0: um and joyce grable and judy martin are both also very well known women wrestlers in the 70s and 80s uh they were a tag team that would feud on and off occasionally but regardless of who was first the late 70s is really the first time that america saw this um and kaufman is usually who's known best and of course it was all a giant prank by the lord of pranks um and you gotta keep in mind, this is before the curtain call, this is before it's like accepted common knowledge that professional wrestling is, is is scripted. Um and it still wasn't until the 90s, right, when the most mainstream crossover star finally broke out. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is of course China. So, Ryan, give us a couple minutes about China.
1: Well, China had a background in bodybuilding, and when she came onto the scene as pretty much DX's muscle. Uh we never really saw a women's wrestling character quite like China at this point. Uh just overall massive. Uh bigger shoulders and half the roster at that point. Uh taller than Shawn Michaels, I think, and even taller than Triple H. And she was like this this menacing figure. And it never really Went into it. Never really became more than her. Just like you know, if someone went up to her, she would like just push him or punch him. So she didn't really had much in reaction until after she left DX. And uh, one of the things now it's always disputed whether or not they were ribbing him, whether or not he was will, a willing participant in this angle. But one of China's first big angles was against Chris Jericho when he first came into the WWE. And what they did was they fought for the intercontinental championship. Now for a woman that was essentially unheard of. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was again, as you just detailed in the last couple of minutes here, it was unheard of for a woman to just even be in a wrestling match with a man in the first place. But uh, she was able to transcend herself over the tropes that exist within, you know, an intergender match. Um, She didn't go out of her way to emasculate her male opponent, and certainly she was not this timid woman uh, getting into the ring fighting a man. Uh, She held her own quite well, and eventually it culminated into uh, two Intercontinental Championship runs. Uh, It culminated into her being the number one contender for the heavyweight champion at some point. I'll have to go back and look whether or not it was taken away from her or whatever shenanigans prevented her from actually entering a match for the heavyweight championship. But yeah, dude, seventh one in the world. China was the fucking, you know, she was awesome, man. I just sorely missed that she got, you know, whether it was of her own doing or other things. Um, her run was legendary as a woman's champion, for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. and And interestingly enough, Mildred Burke, uh, she is 5'2, so she's significantly shorter than China, but very much the same build, just like a very, very built person. And so, like you said, so China was one of the first times that I would say a mainstream wrestling audience saw a woman put in the same position as a man in a wrestling ring and go over legitimately uh and to this day i believe might be the only woman to ever hold one of those major championships i don't believe it's ever happened since in WWE. twice nonetheless twice nonetheless uh although i think one one of them was a
1: co-champion with with jericho okay
0: and wwe like doesn't recognize that on a title on like a um on their record sheets but once once is on the books and like she was there so there's no discrediting it um But to my knowledge, I don't think it's ever happened in WWE, and up until very recently, never really in any other uh, major American promotion as well. Now, since then, right, and we're talking the late 90s, early 2000s, when China was at her peak, um, intergender wrestling has waned significantly in WWE. Uh, If you were a fan in the Attitude Era, the Ruthless Aggression Era, then you will, of course, remember bits like Stacey Keebler— being put through tables, you know you'll you'll recall all sorts of shenanigans, but once the p g era started, we really did away with all of that um however, as it waned in w w e it exploded on the Indies in America, and promotions such as p w g absolute intense wrestling and beyond uh were very well known for putting on pretty high caliber bouts between uh people like Orange Cassidy and Kylie Ray or Candice Luray and Johnny Gargano, or uh Scarlet Bordeaux and Joey Ryan. Woof. Um <laughs> we'll we'll talk Bad time about in there, in. Pal. we'll we'll talk about him in a second. Uh Lucha Underground uh once crowned sexy star as Lucha Underground title for uh holder for a day. And of course most recently in what is I would say one of the biggest uh things to happen in any major promotion I know that you might giggle at the word "major promotion" and "impact" being said in the same word, but they are. Of course, earlier this year, before the world went to hell, or as it was just starting, Tessa Blanchard beat Sammy Callahan for the Impact World Championship. Um, to my knowledge, that made Tessa Blanchard the first woman to ever hold an American major championship, like a like the major championship in a promotion uh Unfortunately, of course, Tessa's reign marred by some really, really fucking terrible shit coming out about her being incredibly racist uh to a lot of women in the locker room. I think the specifically against uh black Rose, I think was her name uh yeah Lado well, Zene. heavily
1: do- not even from her just heavily documented from multiple women wrestlers yeah, I think yeah a- big Allison K was out in the forefront. Yeah, um, we'll
0: talk, but I think it was directed at La Rosa Negra specifically, right, right, right. At, least, at least one of the incidents. Um, and so, you know, it, it didn't get to be as big a deal as it could have been if uh, Tessa Blanchard didn't suck. But this is all the American perspective. See, now intergender wrestling is much less frowned in other parts of the world. For example, in Japan, very famously in DDT, uh, a very young Kenny Omega once wrestled a nine-year-old Riho. Uh, that is where they got their connection. Um, Kenny got death threats over that.
1: And, yeah, you know, I read that earlier when I was looking up on, uh, you know, different types of uh, intergender matches around the world. Of course, how could we forget the uh, the Cornet scorned match against a nine year old? But yes, uh, yeah, dude, he got a lot of shit for
0: that. <laughs> he got a lot of shit for that. And in what is uh, probably the most horrifying match you could ever watch is when Asuka booked herself against Minoru Suzuki in a tag match. I think she Holy tagged shit. up with, with Marufuji, And she was behind the booking of the match. And basically, she's been a huge fan of Minoru Suzuki forever, right? This is when Asuka was Kana shortly before coming over to WWE and NXT after she was already a Joshi legend over in Japan. And basically, she goes up to her idol, Minoru Suzuki, and she goes, Hi, I'm like going to be doing leaving soon. I'd love to have a match with you and I just want you to like beat the shit out of me. And Minoru Suzuki, uh, you know, he had no problem doing that. But when I tell you he beat the shit out of her, I mean like I don't really feel comfortable talking about the level of violence that that match is. I am going to link it. You watch it at your own risk because I'm telling you right now, you are going to see a massive human being in Minoru Suzuki just ragdoll the shit out of can't-be-taller-than-five-foot-three Asuka. Like, I am talking, like, a headbutt that you can hear. Like, just pinning her on the ground and slapping the ever-loving shit out of her. Just kicking the shit out of her. It's, like, horrifying. Like, their partners try to stop it at multiple points, and Suzuki just, like, throws them off. Oh, my God. Is it, like, an
1: even an actual match, or is it just...
0: No, no, this is, like, in the actual match, and, like, Asuka gets, um... You know her offense in but like suzuki like like i i can't believe it's a thing that i watched um yeah and it's and it's so funny to know that asuka was like yes like do that to me like i want you to really bring the pain like i have to think like suzuki for everything that i hear is like a really really nice person um and i have to think that there had to be some part of him at some point was like boy is this is this too much? This feels like too much. Yes and
1: no. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some culture aspect to it, where it's like, okay, you're going to ask me to do that, then I will do that. I'm not going to because you're a woman. I'm not going to lighten up anything on you. Exactly. But yeah. You know, I personally have never seen this match, but
0: you will. <laughs> you will, and you'll never forget it. There are like moments where like Oscar looks dead. That like she's like in Jesus the ropes, Christ. and it's like I can't see her pupils anymore, and it's it's like it it. it It verges on, like, torture porn. Honestly, if I did, if, if it was, it would be, it's unwatchable anyway, but, like, if I didn't tell you that Asuka booked that herself, you would probably hold that up as an example of why, like, you should never allow intergender wrestling, or maybe just wrestling in general. You might just want to, like, arrest (laughs) Minoru Suzuki. (laughs) Um, And over in Mexico, like I had mentioned earlier, Lucha Libre has been doing mixed matches uh, for a while. But it is the same as how WWE does the Mixed Match Classic where uh, men fight men, and women fight women, but they tag together. So the question still begs, can intergender wrestling be a thing? Now, um, unfortunately, one of intergender wrestling's biggest promo- proponents was Joey Ryan, you know, the dick flip guy. And as it turns out, well, wouldn't you know it, uh, the guy who booked himself to go over on people by doing the dick flip... Um, was a giant piece of shit that, like, sexually assaulted a bunch of people. Wouldn't what? you know it? Who could have predicted? Um, Yeah, Joey Ryan has booked himself. It, it, Joey Ryan, very good friends with the Garganos, was a tag team with Candice LeRae for quite some time in the indies. Uh, massive piece of shit. Like, I think he rebranded himself as, like, a guy that found God recently.
1: Oh, you don't say. Wow. Yeah. How, I wonder how that's going to work out for him.
0: Probably fine. They'll start booking. I love how he
1: still links to his Patreon, and his fucking Twitter. Like how short-sighted can you fucking be?
0: Yeah. He like just came back and now it's, yep, literally it's Joey Ryan. Wait, is this, is this the Joey Ryan? Yeah, I think it is. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Luke six twenty seven twenty eight. I wonder wonder who
1: the fuck he's talking about.
0: I wonder if the next parable after that somewhere in like Luke 758 is like, don't rape people and don't uh, don't be a massive piece of shit. Let me know if they find that in the New Testament. Uh, A less uh, problematic proponent of intergender wrestling is Joey Janela. Joey Janela has had a bunch of of intergender matches. I think he had one with Kimberly or something that uh, a lot of people hold up as one of the best examples of an intergender match. Orange Cassidy had really great one. Had a really great one with Kylie Ray. So, so our Ryan, friend Max
1: Caster at Alley Cat.
0: Yes. So here is what I want to know, Ryan. Intergender wrestling, right? Do you feel that there is a place for it in wrestling? Do you think it can be done properly?
1: Absolutely. I. Don't think it could ever fully escape what I brought up earlier is the tropes. And what do I mean by this? Usually when you have an intergender match, it encapsulates two things. Uh, It's either the scenario where the woman is overtly uh, stronger than her opponent. Um, Now, whether or not you want to argue that Nia Jax is stronger than the legendary Cactus Pat uh certainly in their segment though last week it was made to seem that you know pat was the reluctant one uh as naya was trying to goad him into a match um but yeah usually it, it involves the woman emasculating the male and i'm not going to go on some big like you know men's rights thing i don't really care i'm just bringing up that point
0: no but that but you're 100 percent right. right not to interrupt your point but like it's not about a men's rights thing. It's like the comedy comes from emasculating the person which does two things. It says that if you are a guy that can be overpowered or or out-wrestled or uh, beaten in some way by a woman, you're less than a man. Exactly. And for the women, it takes away their ability to just be better than someone at something because there has to be a caveat of like, well, look at the wuss you just beat up. So no, a hundred percent. That is like that is the comedy that comes from a lot of these matches. And it, it
1: boxes the woman in too because we saw what Nia did last year, and she wasn't the first, but she entered the Royal Rumble. So you kind of like you kind of place yourself as like, okay, well, wh- how am I going to rank her strength wise with the other men? Is she just going to keep emasculating her way up the roster? You know, so. It, and then the other side of the coin is um, usually it's this timid woman and the man is in, is being portrayed to like, you know, an overt psychopath to where, you know, he's going to beat the shit out of this woman.
0: Like Suzuki and Asuka. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I've seen plenty of matches recently on the indie scene. I think one that certainly comes to mind, which is one of my favorites, is Cedric Alexander versus Candice LeRae. Mm-hmm. And there's no trope being projected within the match. Uh, They both get their moves on it. But also, it's another thing that I kind of, like, have an issue with with intergender wrestling is that, like, it relies heavily on spots more so than, like, a regular wrestling match would. And that kind of makes sense because you usually have two different types of body builds within the match, unless you're China who can literally stand toe-to-toe pretty much with 75% of the guys in the roster. But, yeah, uh, it can be done effective. I would like to... But, I mean, like, you know what? I mean, if we're talking certain things within wrestling like that's always going to be there we're not going to change the dynamic of how a match gets started the dynamic between the face and the heel that's always going to happen sure but, yeah you know i don't i'm not like you know i don't think that they should ever fight together i think that yeah when it's done effectively it's fucking awesome and it's a shame because you know we pretty much had the pinnacle of where we were at earlier this year with essa blanchard blanchard holding the tna belt and shit man it's gonna take a lot for someone to get back up top like she was doing she was on one hell of a run doing it death is. matches and and other promotions outside of tna and you know fuck you a- tessa
0: absolutely and and that story was actually pretty well done because yes of course they played on on the dynamics between sammy and tessa you know being woman man whatnot but a lot of it was just like Sammy Callahan being a massive piece of shit and doing whatever he could to hurt her, and it was more just face right. heel traditional story. And it's like Tessa, you want to be one of
1: the boys, well, I'm going to treat you like one of the boys. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like that.
0: And and Tessa is an incredibly powerful woman, very powerfully built. Again, so like there was no debate on well, wouldn't it be crazy if Sammy could be like 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 she was very very strong and a very good wrestler in her own right. So. It's it is a shame that it was a pretty well done story. And I'm on the same page as you. Now I do see what Lance Storm is talking about, uh, in terms of because I don't know who responded to her. It could have been Allison Kay, honestly. Somebody responded to him being like, Yeah, but like you can do it safely and like people would people would like to be able and he was like, Yeah, if you could guarantee that I'd be on board. And that is the problem, is there I think in a lot of the indies there is this notion that like you have to be able to do that, and I'm not a wrestler. I don't know the ins and outs of the business. I don't know what it would, you know, I, I, I haven't gotten a chance to talk to a woman who's been in an intergender match before and who can elaborate. Um, but I have no doubt that the things that Lance storm is talking about are absolutely true that you are like, listen, if you're not going to do this match, like this match could be one of the biggest matches of your career. If you don't want to do it, like, what are we, you know, what are we going to do with you? And, uh, of course, We've talked plenty of times over the last couple of weeks, months about how wrestling is full of fucking scumbags and creeps who are absolutely willing to take on that role to benefit themselves and get themselves off. So I have no doubt that what Lance Storm is saying is always meant true. But I also think that there is a place for intergender wrestling, especially because like um you know when you watch like black widow beat someone up in an avengers movie at this point is your first thought wow how big of a fucking bitch did you have to be to get beat up by black widow no you think right. like, yeah black widow's a fucking assassin and like it's i'm amazed you were able to hold your own against her so like i don't see why we need to pretend that like we we can't we can't push rightfully so for women to carve out a space of wrestling where like I can be just as good as anyone here like there are plenty of women wrestlers that yeah. are as technically proficient as strong as smooth as any man out there. We can't try to carve that role out but then be like but you're also different. Like you're you're not the same, right? But like you said it's all about the match dynamics. If you are going to play off of oh isn't it funny how this guy got emasculated by this by this woman? Or you're going to do like, oh, look at the psychopath beating up the poor woman. Like, you can't do that. You have to be able to just do regular match dynamics and have commentary not point that out as well. Like, you have to normalize it. It has to be normal for it to work. Or else you're playing into stereotypes that are heavily invested in toxic masculinity and you'll never be able to do it properly. Yeah,
1: dude. And especially when you have, you know, you're building up figures like Charlotte Clare. There is no doubt in my mind, if Charlotte Flair and I don't know, Finn Balor stepped in the ring, it would be a a fucking awesome match. And yeah, Charlotte could definitely hold her own. So exactly like you said, if they're going to carve their little space and you're going to present their matches as if they would be in the same hemisphere as men's matches, then there's no reason why they should not, you know, intertwine at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly see Lance's perspective from it, and if you're mentioning like you know if there's people on the indies are like oh well you gotta fight this woman like oh you don't want to do it well you know
0: he was saying more vice versa like if you're like you're a woman and like oh, if you're you a don't, woman
1: yeah if you, know, if you, if you I don't mean, it's necessarily to
0: the, want to do a certain match with a certain person it's like well you know if you don't want to do that then like you know
1: yeah and i could see from the, the guy's perspective if she doesn't if they're not comfortable doing a match then they could be like you know why oh, don't want to do a match with the girl you know so I get the problems that exist with it, but, you know, if someone decides to put it on and there's two willing participants, then fuck yeah, I'm all for it. No, no, no doubt about it.
0: It's fucking, it's simulated Dude, you know like
1: fight. Bull Nakano, right? Hmm? Bull Nakano? No. The female Japanese wrestler? She was, uh, you know, I guess, you know, she was way bigger than, honestly, China was in America than she's in Japan. Uh, She did some early 90s work in WWE. And just as strong, just even probably even more menacing and evil than China. And if you look back at some of her matches, dude, could easily go toe to toe with any dude. Uh, Asia Kong, another one,
0: yeah, big for hulking
1: sure. woman, she could fucking go toe to toe with anyone, too. And uh, her name escapes me, but um, I sent you in a match a couple weeks ago, it was Asia Kong versus um. give me oh manami toyota uh another japanese uh woman's legend uh she could go to to anybody so i mean the character work definitely exists for it to happen i would like to see it be portrayed as more so as like you know without the tropes but that's going to be that you know i could say that about any aspect of wrestling it's just always going to be there because that's just the way it's written for tv but yeah no i don't have a problem with it
0: And I, and I, you know, even like forgetting about like big hulking women, like you talk about Charlotte, like forget Charlotte being able to go toe to toe with Finn Balor. Like there's no reason Charlotte couldn't go toe to toe with Seth Rollins. Like Charlotte I wanted to
1: use that example, but I don't know Finn just came up because I thought it would be more of a dynamic between them, you know?
0: No, I get it. But to your point, like there are women on the, on all of these rosters that could absolutely go with some of the best people. I have said it. What did, what did I say? What did I say two episodes again? Who do we stand on this podcast, Ryan? Who do we stand? Toriano. Yes, we stand Torriano. But we also stand Bianca Belair. Because oh, yes. Bianca Belair is pound for pound the fucking best wrestler on that roster. And Bianca but there is not a single person on the roster outside of like no, there is no one on a roster that I could not believably think Bianca Belair could beat in a wrestling match. Because if you want me to believe that Seth Rollins can beat Brock Lesnar in a wrestling match, I don't see why Bianca Belair couldn't as well. Like, there are, same thing with Asuka. The argument that Asuka couldn't beat a guy is the same argument you would use for someone like Daniel Bryan or Johnny Gargano. You just think they're too small to do it. Like, Asuka is one of the best wrestlers on the world, Period. Any promotion, any geographic location. There is no world in which I would not immediately believe Asuka is a credible threat to any other member of the WWE roster, insofar as if you want me to take people like Daniel Bryan seriously and you want me to take people like Johnny Gargano seriously, I don't see why I can't take someone like Asuka seriously. So to wrap it all up, I I think that, you know, we're on the same page here. I think I agree with Lance um that I there is absolutely Uh, a lot of really unsafe ways that people go about it. And I see why he's calling for an end to it, but I do not want to be so nihilistic that I think there's no world where you couldn't make things better. I think you always have to strive for a better world and wrestling in a lot of ways is a dumpster fire. And if you want it to be a little less of a dumpster fire, there's a surefire way, you know? So I'm all for it as long as we go about it in a way where you're just telling a fucking story Take a take a cue from Impact, honestly. Well, it's it's a storyline that they did well, and I really think it could work. Um,
1: well said, my friend.
0: That's that's uh, that's our little thing on intergender wrestling. I figured it was topical as of late, and uh, it was very interesting to learn about Mildred Burke and and just to see how these dynamics played out. And it's very interesting to know that women's wrestling was actually taken seriously in the 30s and 40s. I mean, this is before women were even like considered. Uh, appropriate for a workforce, you know? We're talking pre-World War II, so it's honestly fucking crazy. You know, every once in a while, the wrestling world, I feel like, has these things where you're like, wow, really? This has been normal for you guys?
1: Yeah, Um, more so or less. Um, It sucks because you wonder, you know, if there was five other Milderbergs out there that weren't held down where the industry would be for women's wrestling as it stands. I mean, like we said, it was held down for nearly three decades. So... You know, it takes a lot. takes a village, but, you know, fuck, man. Yeah, no, I I feel that all the time, that, like, you know, wrestling was transcending society in the 30s, but you had individuals obviously hold it down for one reason or another, so, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: So, you know, there we are. So, Ryan, as we begin to wrap up here, do you have a legend killer for us today? I do. Most good, most good.
1: Uh, I'm gonna yell at you if you don't get it, but it's a great picture. So let me send it to you.
0: Um, Ryan, are you sure this picture was meant for me? I feel like we've had a conversation about unsolicited pictures like this before. Oh shit. Uh, okay. So who am I? Who <laughs> am I looking at here? Well, you know what? I have a guess that I don't think is right. Um, and I'm All sure. Right, well, this give me is...
1: give me your guess that you don't think is right. Because I, I guess think, I think I made know who you're thinking of and if you do it's gonna be fucking hilarious but let me see
0: (laughs) my initial thought was that that is like a very young bailey yes (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad it wasn't just the first thing i thought (laughs) all
1: right well tell me who you really think it is then but i'm glad you fucking guessed it was that so continue please
0: okay this looks like a picture that someone would have taken in high school in the 80s Okay. Is that is that like the right yes. era? Uh
1: yeah. maybe late 70s. Maybe late 80s.
0: 70s. Okay. Is this a person that was on either WCW or WWF? WWF exclusive. WWF exclusive. Okay. Hmm. What was their hair color in WWF? Black. Black. Uh all right, I'm just gonna throw out some names that are wrong. Uh in order, Vicky Guerrero.
1: Nope.
0: Um close. Tr- I'm close with Vicky Guerrero.
1: You're close with—is
0: it Eddie Guerrero?
1: <laughs> it was an associate of Eddie Guerrero. <laughs> it's not.
0: It's not. Is it? It's not Nancy. Is it? Nope. Okay, thank God. Uh,
1: Famous valet for Eddie Guerrero.
0: Oh fuck! Who's his? God damn
1: it! Who is who is the... his love in WWF? Who is his mamacita? <laughs>
0: fucking christ my we my memory fails me we talked about her?
1: We talked about her like, extensively. Today? Yes.
0: Well, that's embarrassing. Uh <laughs> fuck, we talked about her extensively today. It it's China. It's China. I was going to guess China, but then I thought I thought no you barely? know what this is no this is your fault because i How was like my well, fault. i said i'm gonna yell you if you don't get it <laughs> because I, because i'm thinking you're like there's no way he's gonna fucking send me china and ryan you know i'm fucking face blind so this feels like a goddamn setup no, no, no.
1: you see if i didn't send any president before i said if i didn't say, if i didn't say anything beforehand and i sent it to you and, and you didn't guess china okay but i said i'm going to yell at you if you don't get this the alley oop, wow. Damien. The alley oop. It's China. Alley-oop. This is a young well, picture of China from, I don't know, ninth grade or something. But I'm glad you guessed it basketball. was Bailey.
0: We don't play basketball. I don't do alley oops. There are no slam dunks here. There are right, so only... missed the
1: one You missed the one timer.
0: There's only bricks and failure. <laughs> um, wow. That is not what China looks like. I mean it like it, obviously it is but like it's not yeah I would not have
1: not, not the beautiful like, woman she became.
0: No because I only ever think of China as like like strapping young last China. Yes. Yeah, I mean I, de- I definitely see it like when I'm in the face but it's just so yeah. different. Like I yeah, I love I love a good sweater collar shirt situation. Great combo. Um do you have any other fun facts about China that you know? Um or fun little stories. I, I can't really recall any. Uh Mick Foley called
1: her one of the nicest people, one of the most genuine people on the roster, and she was just very quiet. She wasn't like, you know, one of the boys with the ex, you know. Um, just generally sweet. It was a tragedy what happened to her. Um, I think the industry didn't do right by her in trying to get her the help that she needed. But her choices were her choices. And um, no doubt in my mind, if she was still around today and willing and in shape, she can go back for a war match. And I think she would, if she was able to be the China of 2000, 2001, 2002, she would kill it in a match with um, Charlotte or, you know, Ray Ripley. Imagine like a peak China versus a peak Ray
0: Ripley right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. That would have been fucking, fucking awesome. crazy for sure. Yeah, well, all right. It's, it's embarrassing that you stump me, but you stump me again.
1: Congratulations.
0: A good right, one for so, the gram.
1: A good one for the gram.
0: A good one for the gram indeed. So, as we wrap up here, Ryan, what have you been listening to?
1: Well, the long awaited wait for me is over. Um, after eight long years, one of my favorite bands of all time, Misery Singles, released yes. their new record and ultraviolet now in the past couple of years uh mrs signals had some lineup changes out was carl and carl brought a great dynamic to the band he had a great clean singing voice and just this absolutely filthy and monstrous um screaming voice and in came their old vocalist jesse and it was sort of like uh you know a kind of Jesus moment for him. He was able to reclaim himself in this former band. He took a break for you un- for university and a couple other things that were going on in his life. And what resulted in it is just this absolutely ferocious album, still a pragmatic, uh, venture for misery signals because, uh, definitely the heaviness is there and just the brutality that everybody, you know, from the medical aspects that, um, Miser Signals really thrives on. Uh, They don't have as much as the uh, melodic interludes that kind of existed within Controller or on um, excuse me, like on Mirrors. But uh, definitely a great comeback for them. And I certainly hope this is not the last release for them. And I can't wait to fucking see them. If we ever get that chance again to have some (laughs) live music in our lives, or I suppose I can just go Bring my fat ass down to Sturgis with all the other fat asses and fucking watch Fozzie. I can't there believe we had, to cancel, we had to cancel Smash Mouth, man. They had a great run in 20 years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. Yeah, so I am not, like, as big a um, Misery Signals fan as, as like, you and, and our friends Travis and Tom. But, um... I do like them a lot and I, and controller. I know is one of those albums that a lot of people loved in high school. And when I checked it out, I really dug it. So I, I listened to this one and I, I, I agree. Yeah. It's this really, you know, I guess I, it would be funny for me to call it a return to form, but just when I listen to like controller versus this, like, yeah, it's, it's very punishing. I like that. They have yeah. this kind of, they have this um, sense of, melody that i always appreciate in metal it core. really grabs
1: at the heartstrings, strings man they really just have this unique ability to mix their music with you know to be as he- heavy as anybody else in the scene but like you know write these passionate riffs and you know these um <clears throat> these you know create these soundscapes in their music that like you know it just really invigorate you and just a band i've always been passionate about over the years and honestly i thought they were lost to time so uh happy to have them back
0: it it makes me think a lot of the ghost inside like with like that similar yeah. blend of mm-hmm. like melody and and heaviness ghost inside also just had to part with their bass player after their bass player said a bunch of really racist shit so shout outs to them um yeah that was uh yeah i, I enjoyed listening to that album a lot and for me um Not quite as cool, but I've been I've been very big on going back and listening to specific albums from Blink-182. So they just released a single quarantine, which like doesn't have Matt Skiba on it, which is interesting. And it's like the first actual fast, longer than 30 second punk song they've written in quite some time. But, you know, it actually made me go back and listen not to like Dude Ranch and Enema of the State but it made me go back and listen to the self-titled and what I consider to be the best releases Blink-182 ever made in Neighborhood and Dogs Eating Dogs. Um, okay. Because I have a question
1: about um, self-titled. Yes. And I know he's on the album, but was that kind of like their love letter to like The Cure and well, all of like those proto-punk bands of the 80s?
0: Well, do you know who has a guest spot on one of the songs? Yeah,
1: no, I'm sorry. I don't know if you heard me. I I know Robert Smith is on the album, but it seems like they really were trying to go in that direction at the time. People called it emo, but it was certainly more deeper than that.
0: Yeah, it was very... I I would not be shocked if it was because Tom DeLonge uh, unabashedly loves that style of music. He loves that like heavy reverb, really melodic, uh, very like... Overly emotional shit. Um, Mark, Hoppus And to their credit,
1: well. The Cure wasn't like all that. I mean, at their peak, they were. Disintegration is one of the best albums of all time. And, you yes. know, certainly the best example of that type of music. But if you go back and like early in their career and you listen to like Killing an Arab, like definitely can hold up as like a punk song.
0: Absolutely. um They're proto punk in a lot of ways. And yeah, that's really what it was. And it's a shame. And Plus 44, Mark Hopps' side project after that, When Your Heart Stops Beating, is an album that I really love because they started taking, like, it's funny because when you talk about pop punk bands becoming more mature, all it really means is that the breakup songs started getting written in minor keys instead of major keys. Um, (laughs) Great
1: point. And they started
0: using more effects, but they really started, like, experimenting with heavier themes, especially on, like, Neighborhoods and Dogs Eating Dogs. It's just I like the songwriting a lot more. And I think it's a shame that they broke back up again. And then we got California and nine, which like nine has some of that, but it's very overproduced. And California is like an album that should have come out in 2003. Like California is the album that should have come after take off your pants and jacket. And then the self-titled should have happened. Um, But it just made me like go back and listen to some of that shit and just really have an appreciation for what I think is a band that takes a lot of heat these days for being like, incredibly immature which they are but also being like very juvenile songwriters and yeah there's some fucking good shit there
1: it's kind of a shame that they couldn't they didn't stick around for like the uh the new wave of pop punk that came out like with Four Years strong and a day to remember i mean they were there but they weren't like encapsulated within the scene i mean i wasn't expecting them to start playing fucking chugging metal riffs or anything like that but i mean you know certainly they could have had more of a place within that than they had.
0: Do you imagine if they started chugging along though?
1: I'm sure they could fucking do it. Um,
0: one other, one last album that I want to uh highlight here. Um, so a band that I love a lot, Cloud Nothings. Um, if you've never listened to them, they are in a lot of ways, they are like a little punkier or like a little more straightforward in songwriting version of Sonic Youth. Uh, okay. they have a lot of similar aesthetic uh stylings, a lot of similar uh songwriting habits. Um, and they released something on Bandcamp only not that long ago. Um the album is called The Black Hole Understands. It was an album that they wrote in quarantine, all separate. Really great album. Cloud Nothings uh is very good for like alternating between like really abrasive, kind of like aggressive, punky alt rock and, you know, a little more jangly stuff and this album is very um it's really some really great songs in there some really great songwriting and it's perfect for like a gray overcast day where you just want to take a drive for 40 minutes um it's on Bandcamp. i think you can get it you can listen to it for free obviously um they also have a subscription service where like for five dollars a month you get an ep every month which i decided to do because i think is very cool um and yeah Cloud Nothings, um, I would check out that album. And, you know, if you're into that, every other album, Attack on Memory, here and nowhere else, I really love a lot. So check them out. Uh, I'm also just going to shout out White Pony because I listened to that again.
1: Oh, fuck yeah, bud. 20th <laughs> anniversary, man.
0: Yes, it is. Yes. It, wow. Holy shit. We'll um, always have
1: time for White Pony on this podcast.
0: Yeah, listen, it's, I, I'm really And they're glad. coming up with a new
1: album, hopefully within the next. Two months or so, so I'll oh, be fucking that's right. Waiting with bells and whistles on.
0: Isn't it amazing that uh, new metal bands can still write good music in two th- in the 2020s? If only another fucking certain ah. Armenian new metal band could maybe get their shit together and just write some fucking shit and let us all be on with it. It's
1: funny that you mentioned that because over the weekend was the uh, I guess eighth year anniversary of the Jones Beach show, which so I think I've spoken. Passionately about it on this podcast before. I mean yes. long story short, I saw System of a Down in deftones Tones at Jones Beach. Huge fucking mammoth Armageddon storm came over as deftones Tones played and it was pouring mm-hmm. and it was just a magical moment. And then like the fucking clouds cleared and then fucking System came out and played one of the best shows I ever saw in my life. So I don't know.
0: Like, that was after fucking... was that the diamond eyes tour? Or was that the album? That was, no, that
1: was right before Koino Yo came out. Uh huh. In fact, I think later they came out with it two months after that and that's when Sandy and all that shit happened. I was supposed to see Deftones on the night Hurricane Sandy landed. Oh. Yeah. So there's a little I... uh little tie-in for you.
0: <laughs> storms uh, right. and new metal. Storm storms and storms and deftones. All right, so that's that's what we got here. So uh
1: Uh before we go, I just wanted to say rest in peace to wrestling legend Kamala who Yes passed away over the weekend. Um, if you don't know, uh, he was a little, little before our time, but, um, one of the best wrestling characters amidst the crazy wacky, uh, wrestling scene. I mean, he, he came up with Cherry the King Waller and, um, in mid South and, uh, eventually got on his way to the WWF scene, but like amongst, you know, Vince's wacky characters of the late eighties, early nineties, certainly held his place. And is also one of the few people to body slam Andre the Giant. wasn't just Hulk. Mm-hmm. Um, but they currently have a GoFundMe for his family. Uh, he wasn't in the best of financial situations before he passed. So Damien's going to throw the link up there if you have a couple of shekels to donate. Uh, by all accounts, he was a great man and a great wrestler. So try to donate if you can.
0: Absolutely. And final shout-outs here. Uh, so remember that uh, Rex will be at the Real Rumble weekend. Uh, it's going to be at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. Um, make sure to go see your reigning defending New York Wrestling Connection champion. And shout-outs to the greatest wrestler in the history of wrestling, Bryce Donovan, as he has amassed a 3-0 and perfect record in the uh, definitely not the G1 cap uh, tournament to decide who's best wrestler. So, shout outs to him and the rest of Shook Crew. And I can't believe I didn't talk about this earlier, but it's almost G1 season, baby. Oh, yeah. So, make sure to make sure to. We've got exercise. a fun
1: couple weeks coming up.
0: Yes, we do. So, we've got some fun stuff coming up. Uh, please make sure if you enjoy things to rate and subscribe and write a review and, you know, do whatever it is that we have to. Uh, that we're legally obligated to tell you to do. We thank you again for all of your tireless, uh, around-the-clock, 24-7 fervent support. Um, And we here are going to keep doing what we do. So, for Ryan, for myself, this has been the most electrifying, must-listen-to podcast in sports entertainment. This has been FFC.